Gentlemen, start your engine. Booster, go. Retro, go. Vital, we're go fly. Guidance, guidance, go. Atomic batteries to power. Surgeon, go fly. Econ, we're go fly. GNC, we're go. Delmu, go. Control, go fly. Procedures, go. Inco, go. FAO, we are go. I'm completely operational and all my circuits are functioning perfectly. Network, go. Recovery. Go! Capcom. We're go fly. Time circuit's on. Flux capacitor. Fluxing. Engine running. Launch control. This is Houston. We are go for launch. Very bad feeling about this. Danger, Will Robinson. Danger. Live from the bunker, it's Sci-Fi For Me Radio. This is Dave Margosian, live from Convergence in Bloomington, Minnesota, with multiple Hugo and Nebula Award-winning author, Lois McMaster-Bujold. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for inviting me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Uh, I am a science fiction and fantasy writer. Um, I started uh, trying to write professionally back in 1982 when I was in my early 30s. I made my first sales in the mid-80s to Bain Books. Uh, and that started the Vorkosigan series, uh, which is my uh, action-adventure, space opera, everything uh, series. It's been running for Plus 30 years romance now. romance and mystery. And romance and mystery, and yeah. It's, it's kind of been a, been a challenge to me to see how many genres I could fit into one series. <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, why be limited? There sure. Are, yeah. There are no genre police that make you color inside the lines, you know, which is something I figured out fairly early on. Uh, so there's that, and I've written uh, some fantasy, uh, The Curse of Chalion, and the subsequent books of that for HarperCollins. Mm -hmm. uh, also the Sharing Knife series, which is a closed series. I'm very interested in series structures, playing around with them in all these different series. And that has brought me uh, to 2017. Tell our listeners a little bit about the evolution of Miles Verkosigan. What sort of plan did you start with it with? It, it, when he was a gleam in Cordelia's eye and, and uh, where he is actually now. Okay, well this is a long-running series and it did not have a grand master plan. Uh, or in, if it did, it kept mutating every year. So basically, Miles knew as much about what was going to happen next as I did, or vice versa. Uh, yeah, every year, every book was a new start and a new opportunity. Uh, so I was never locked in to a set of ideas that had become old and stale. I was always able to recreate the series every year and do fresh things with it, which is, I think, part of its secret of longevity. Uh, Miles as a character came as we all do from our parents. Uh, my first novel, Shards of Honor, uh, was the story of how uh, Errol Vorkosigan and Cordelia Naismith met uh, and found themselves on opposite sides of a war for a while. Uh, eventually married and then uh, moved to uh, his planet, which was less than ideal, <laughs> but, uh, but they all coped. Uh, Miles was born uh, as a result of the Civil War in Barrier, which followed subsequently. Uh, he was, his mother was caught in a poison gas attack, uh, an assassination attempt on his father, and this, through a complicated series of uh, consequences resulted in him being born with brittle bones and other physical handicaps, uh, which he had to cope with all his life, in a world that uh, is militaristic and values physical perfection, 
Uh, and so he has, he has it coming from both directions. He has the physical handicap, he has his mother's science background and you know, insistence on intelligence, and uh, his father's and grandfather's and you know, male ancestors' uh, military, you know, glorious military traditions you know, that he's trying to live up to. So he's a guy with a lot to prove. Uh, and that uh, certainly gives him his motivation uh, as, as he gets started. The first book he appears in as a 17-year-old is The Warrior's Apprentice, uh, in which he, uh, he goes out and has his you know, initial adventures in the, in the galaxy. Um, there's a lot of ways to describe The Warrior's Apprentice. Uh, I like the description, you know, sort of the, the spiritual arc description, that this is a young man who, who struggles with his three besetting sins of, of uh, imprudence, pride, and despair. Uh, but, okay. you know, but this plays out uh, in the course of uh, him uh, trying and failing to get into the military. Uh, he goes on what's supposed to be a safe vacation trip and ends up gun running mm -hmm. uh, into a galactic war. And uh, the consequences of that spin out beyond his control, okay. naturally. Uh, he learns a lot in the course of that book. Um, and uh, then further adventures follow from there as, as he comes back, gets a military education and a military career briefly. Um, also runs afoul of problems uh, and uh, ends up being essentially a, a spy. He is assigned to the uh, to the uh, Imperial intelligence, uh, imperial security, because he really doesn't fit in the uh, in the standard military structures, and yet, you know, he's too good to waste. Uh, plus, he has these high connections. He's too close to the throne. You can't leave him running around loose. Right. Uh, so, uh, so further adventures follow from that up to the point where um, he pushes it as far as he can, and then then we take the series in a different direction. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you when you write Miles, does he does he speak to you? Not necessarily in, <laughs> uh, in a in a psychological sense, but does does he say, "Hey, I wouldn't do that"? Kind of, yeah. Every character has their own integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, you cannot make them do certain things, or they become not themselves. Uh, some writers value plot. You know, the plot is the most important thing, and if the characters have to change to fit the plot, then they'll do that. Right. For me, it's the other way around. You know, the character is the start, is the key. We're, we're telling the story of the character, and if the plot is not working, uh, you know, you cannot demand the characters do things that are out of character. Uh, so I need to change the plot at that point, which leads my plot into some very unexpected directions. You know, the, my plots are not as predictable as some, I am told. Um, so that's actually very fruitful for me as a writer uh, to be to be forced out of standard plot patterns uh, by the insistence of the characters on you know we wouldn't do that. Where's our health insurance? <laughs> Other questions that you don't expect from the mercenaries. I suppose not. Has he ever led you the wrong way with the wrong direction with a story? Um, you think he's he might do one thing and then he ends up doing something different well that's that's not a wrong way that's discovering what the story ought to be okay. uh, i have occasionally been blocked because i couldn't think of what would happen next to solve all the multiple problems that you know are tangled together when you've got multiple characters in a situation that's in motion um 
I've sometimes been blocked when, you know, I think I know what the next scene is, but I just can't write it, and I just can't write it. And, you know, I have notes, I may have visualized, and it's the wrong thing to do. And eventually, you know, after whining my way through this block for a while, I figured this out, you know, okay, it's time to back up and think, you know, what, what actually is going to happen here. Okay. And that happens with more than the Miles stories. Uh, it happens in my other stories as well. I will get, get to a point where, where it's not working and it's time to rethink. Uh, because, How often would you say that happens? Oh, uh, two or three times a book, several times a book, <laughs> every chapter. Do you know. think that's average for authors in general? I don't know. Everyone has a different process, yeah, and they have different words, different lexicon to describe it, different metaphors for themselves. Uh, there was a story I was writing the uh, second volume of the Sharing Knife Quartet, mm -hmm. uh, where I had. Uh, wanted a certain character, uh, so I think I worked out his grandfather or some such character, and it was, you know, it was the wrong character. I had invented this character, he was about to come on stage, and it wasn't working, and I found out, oh no, it needs to be the brother. And then it all opened up and flowed again. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, uh, it's very peculiar and uh, thing, and it isn't always solvable by logic. Uh, you need that, sure. that inspiration. No, it's the brother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why didn't I think of that? Uh, there was another occasion in uh, The Curse of Chalion when I wanted a particular character to take a particular action and I could not think of his motivations. And I kept thinking of weirder and weirder backstories for him. <laughs> and yeah, it's like, yeah, no, not this, no, not this. And yeah, no, he's not really that. And, oh, yeah, some other character lied to him. That's why he did it. Uh, you know, oh yeah, and then and it was absolutely in character for that character uh, to have lied. Um, so you know, all the characterization flowed and it opened up, and it was a much stronger story as a result than trying to put this you know, complicated fix in. Uh, I found one. I call it the epicycle problem. If the fixes I'm working on for a plot problem get more and more complicated. Uh, what is probably wrong is the underlying theory, mm -hmm. uh, whereas, you know, for example, the, uh, the old Copernican system of, of circular orbits that were perfect yeah, right. uh, didn't match the data, and they kept coming up with these little fixes. Like th There would be circles on the circles, and they kept you know, trying to make circles work, and it needed to be ellipses, and it took Kepler to see that, and that, that whole structure collapsed into a single simple theory. Uh, it's that kind of feeling when you break through a plot problem that's been, you know, been a snarl. Okay. And then it suddenly turns out to be simple because it needed to be ellipses. Just change the yeah. structure a little bit and yeah. then everything kind of smooths out. Yeah, and then huh? it's like, oh, okay. Why didn't I think of that five weeks ago? <laughs> so you spoke about your, your fantasies, um, uh, the uh, Chalian series and the Sharing Knife mm -hmm. series. What made you decide to go into fantasy as opposed to writing another science fiction epic mm -hmm. or maybe something along the same lines in the Miles Verkoskin universe? Well, the writers I grew up on were sort of ambidextrous from science fiction to fantasy. You know, Heinlein wrote both, uh, Paul Anderson wrote both. You know, a, lot of, a lot of people wrote both science fiction and fantasy. To me, that seemed normal. You know, I, I never saw them as separate um, things. Uh, I think that... Uh, the market, you know, people have peculiar ideas about how the market really works, but, uh, uh, you know, it didn't, didn't always need to be. I always liked reading both. 
and I always wanted to do both. Okay. Uh, the Miles books were working well, and I kept having ideas. Uh, but then I had another set of ideas that you know didn't fit into the Miles stories. Okay. Uh, and I wanted to go with them, so I did. You know, it was the right time. Uh, it was about the turn of the millennium. I was ahead uh, financially, so I could like take a year and do something on spec. Yeah, I didn't have to. Uh, I didn't have to contract my time ahead to write a particular thing you know, in order to get the money sure. uh, to live on. So that little bit of freedom was was what I took, and then uh, and that resulted in the Curse of Chalian and the subsequent books in that world. And uh, th those were uh, written later than the Spirit Ring, which was your first foray yeah. into yeah. Fantasy. The Spirit Ring was I did in the early '90s, and it was you know something I wanted to try. Uh, it was combination. It was like trying to write a historical novel and a fantasy novel for the first time, both at the same time. Okay. Yeah, I was playing with the Italian Renaissance, which is a period that always fascinated me. I uh, had some uh, some research material that I wanted to make use of. Uh, there was, uh, first of all, Diri Metallica, which is a, uh, a volume uh, written by a 15th century or thereabout 16th century German mining and metallurgist uh, named Agricola, well, that was his Latin pen name. Um, written in Latin, but translated, interestingly enough, by Herbert Hoover, who was a mining engineer before he was president. Uh, he and his wife uh, translated this tome. It was a Dover reprint that came down from my dad's uh, bookshelf. I also had a book uh, called The Grateful Dead, which was a 1907, I think it was my great uncle's PhD thesis in English and folklore, in which he explored this flo folkloric tale uh, the Grateful Dead, which the, the short version is a young man goes down the road, comes across a situation where the body of a debtor lies unburied. Uh, he gets the guy, his debt's paid and gets him buried, goes down to the, continues on to further adventures in which he is helped by the grateful ghost of the dead man. And there, he followed this story through like 20 languages and 20 countries and 20 centuries. Yeah, it was, uh, wow. it was fascinating. Uh, all the different versions, you know, trying to figure out which version came first and what, you know, this, this kind of academic approach. So they were always sort of dried little raisins of stories in this academic book that, you know, just begged to be... Uh, so it did have some sort yeah. of influence on you. Like. Yeah, so that was, you know, one book for my mom's side and one book for my dad's, so it's very <laughs> familial <laughs> sort of... Sort well, of thing ideas there. come from everywhere. Right? Yeah, so yeah. that and uh, and that and the uh, autobiography of Benvenuto Cellini, which you know, the first time I read it, I got to steal this. Nobody <laughs> could make this stuff up. This guy is a loon. <laughs> I don't think anybody's heard of him either. Benvenuto Cellini. Oh yeah, famous goldsmith. Oh okay. You get the salt cellar. It was famously stolen a few years ago, but they recovered it. Oh goodness. And yeah, he's he's fascinating. He's, well, I've, uh, he's I've a, never heard of him. Yeah, he's 15th century dude, and his biography, autobiography, is available. You can check it out and read it. The autobiography I, of Benvenuto Cellini. Wow. Yeah, highly recommended because <laughs> because it's jaw dropping. Um, okay. Well, that's that's pretty fascinating. It's kind of stunning, actually. <laughs> um, well, let me ask about about something as your inner voice or an editor or, um, say, a beta reader suggested something to you that ended up being 
maybe not the best way to go, but because the story had already, or story or the uh, book had already been published, you couldn't change it. Ah, okay. Yes, those are always always very annoying because where were you when I needed you? You know, nine months ago. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you you always get those, uh, but you know nothing nothing too you know, nothing too important. There's you know the book is the book. It was the best I could. It is always the best I could do at the time. Okay. Yeah, and then then I have to kind of let them go until it comes time to proofread them for a new edition. Oh, <laughs> and it's okay. like, oh, I gotta fix that sentence. Um, so uh, so yeah, it's a, somebody says that art has never finished; it's only abandoned. And I think that's true for writers. You know, it's like I could fix it one more, and then you get to the point where you've been stuck in this story so long, you're sick of it, and you want anything to get out. And there's this other story that's waiting to be told. You know, so you can't spend all your life protect, perfecting one story, or you'll never write the others. Something I learned early on in my writing uh, with the Shards of Honor and then Warrior's Apprentice was the second novel that I wrote. Um, I'd written Shards of Honor, I'd sent it off, it went into uh, submissions hell and disappeared for months and months and months. I started on the next book. But the things I needed to know to properly revise that first draft of Shards of Honor, what became Shards of Honor, I learned by writing the second book. Uh, so if I just sat down at the end of Shards of Honor when I had just finished it and tried to revise it, I would not have been able to do that. I needed to move forward and le learn new things and I could bring them back and uh, and revise uh, from a much you know a somewhat higher level of understanding of what I was doing. And you can correct that in a, another yeah. Yeah. edition of the same book. Yeah, although I I'm I don't rewrite first of all because it would be a it would be a rabbit hole that you'd never get out of. Sure. You'd start endlessly endlessly revising and you would never once again never move forward. So it's kind of okay. That was the what the 90, 1986 version of me was writing. I should respect that writer. No, I'm not that writer anymore. Yeah. Okay, well, fix fix this bit of syntax here and sure. uh, regularize the spelling <laughs> and a few other little mechanical things. But uh, but I don't revise older work. You know, I don't uh, try to bring it up to today's whatever because that would be once again an endless cycle because there's always another today that you want to chase after. I'm better off writing the next book. That's true. <laughs> really? Understandable. Okay. So the the whole uh, Verkosian series has been nominated for a Hugo this year. How does yes? Uh, seeing that some of them have already been nominated and won Hugos. Uh huh. Uh, how does that make you feel? You know, overall. Well, I've been delighted with the honors that I received. Uh, somebody did a. Somebody who tracks these things has got a website that tracks it's something or another database and I think there were like 90 different awards or nominations <laughs> accrued to my career over all this time I'll believe it um, I've got I've got the link somewhere um, but uh, you know so so getting the first award was you know was a big boost it was a big important breakthrough it made me more visible it was very important at the start of my career mm -hmm. Uh, and, and the others were validation. You know, there's there's never a bad award <laughs> to receive. But there is does come a point where it becomes kind of redundant. Okay, <laughs> we've already proved this thing. We don't need to prove it again. Uh, but it's still, you know, still always they still love me. You know, it's a good thing. Um, so yeah, the the for Kosigan series has won three Hugos. Uh, 
plus the one for novellas, so that's four. Mm -hmm. uh, the fifth went to uh, Palette of the Souls, which is one of the Chalian fantasies. Right. Um, got nebulas, I've got, you know, locus awards, I've got all these other awards that nobody has ever heard of, sometimes including me. <laughs> um, and uh, so, in a way, the Best Series nomination is like redundant, and in a way, it's like cool. <laughs> sure. It just reinforces what I, they've I said before. I would not turn right? it down. Yeah, let's put it that way. But it's not going to make a difference to my career the way winning the first award would for a younger writer. Okay. Yeah, it's it's like a diminishing returns proposition. So it's and so it's yeah. Either way is fine. Okay. <laughs> well, I discovered you um, when you won the Nebula for Falling Free. If oh I'm my not goodness! Yeah, that's back in the late nineties. Way back then. Um, and I've I've read a lot of your stuff, and unfortunately, I don't remember most of it. <laughs> but one of my my favorite book of yours is Falling Free. Oh, Probably because that's the one that I started with. Uh -huh. uh, I just found so much character and charm in the quaddies that it was it just mm -hmm. stuck with me for one reason or another. Do you have a favorite tale or a favorite mm. story that you've written or even a book as opposed yeah. to... Uh, each one has a different reason for me to have written and, and to you know, remember it fondly or, you know to be proud of it. Uh, memory is one of my favorites uh, because it's it's got so much internal stuff going along uh, which fascinates me. Uh, a civil campaign was just fun. Uh, it, was a, it was kind of my Regency romance in space with biology. <laughs> um, so that was a thing. Uh, Curse of Chalion was a, was a new you know, new direction and it was a very exciting work. Uh, Paladin of Souls, I got to pull in all this women's life stuff and, and put it into the book. Um, Gentleman Joel and the Red Queen allowed me to explore another genre. Uh, it's you know, sort of, I don't know, almost mainstream. Um, oh. Yeah, it's kind of like mainstream space opera. It's a terrible misinterpretation, but, <laughs> but I seem to have gotten away with it mostly. A lot of people didn't understand what I was doing with that book, but enough did that I think I'm, I'm solid. So every book has had its own reason for existing, uh, and uh, so yeah. Each one has its own mm -hmm. thing that you take yeah. away from it. That yeah, and I seem not to be able to repeat myself. You know, once I've done a theme, until I've lived long enough to have something new to say about that theme, uh, I it's it's finished and I right. can't rewrite. Which so is I, great for everybody. You know, I, I, well, I don't know. My publisher probably would like more of the same. <laughs> Uh, in greater quantity, um, but I don't, it's not something I can do, so we'll make a virtue of necessity, decide it's a good thing. Well, best of luck to you on that. Thank you. So, I think it's been, well, not quite a half an hour, but uh, okay. we'll, we'll try and finish up here. Uh, where can your fans get a hold of you or find you on social media? Aha, well, I'm not big on social media, but I do blog on Goodreads, Okay. and I'm accessible there. Uh, there's an old fan-run website uh, called dendari.com, D-E-N-D-A-R-I-I.com. Uh, it is, uh, I kind of parasitize it. It is it's not run by me or owned by me, but it's got a lot of stuff about me on it. So it's, a, it's a resource. There is a Vorkosigan wiki that one of the fans has put together that has uh, 
a lot of material, including uh, links to interviews and uh, and we'll other. Have to make sure we get this one in. Bujol material. Yeah, let's make sure we <laughs> exchange emails, and I can send you all the links. Okay. Uh, so there's 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 enough. There's, there's plenty enough. enough. <laughs> so okay. We don't need Twitter. We don't need to. No, Twitter. no, we don't. Should I tell you the J by J error? Tolkien theory of, of social media. Show. Yeah. J.R.R. Tolkien does not blog. He does not answer fan mail. He does not Twitter. He does not do any of things, these things, and yet his books sell just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the J.R.R. Tolkien model of social media is one that I would like to follow, except for the part about being dead. <laughs> <laughs> Skip that one. Yes, please. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, so it's, you don't have to do all this stuff to sell books. You just have to write books that sell themselves, and then you're good. There you go. It's the lazy author's way out. <laughs> well, Lois McMaster's Bujold, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2017 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. And remember, no matter where you go, there you are.